raised by kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome, whichever part of the world you're listening from. Uh, this is Morris here with episode whatever it is, I think 17 of Love That Album. Uh, and I'm very excited about this one. I know I always say that, but um, uh, this is going to be something slightly different and something slightly the same. The same bit is that I'm revisiting uh, an artist that I've already covered on the show. In fact, the very first episode, myself and Jeff Jenkins had covered... Uh, two Springsteen albums back-to-back, uh, -back, uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town versus The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Which one was the better one? Of course, uh, The Wild, The Innocent, The E Street Shuffle came down, hands down, and of course, Jeff Jenkins isn't here to argue against the case. But um, given that Bruce Springsteen has released a new album in uh, recent weeks, Wrecking Ball, and it's got a lot of people talking, so I thought I'd ask on the show... Uh, two of Australia's foremost Springsteen experts to uh, join me in discussing this album. Uh, and we'll start off uh, with uh, a fellow um, uh, lover of Springsteen who has been on the show uh, a number of times already, and I'm talking about my good friend Jeff Smith. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, Morris. How are you doing? Uh, in, in good health and very excited about our conversation. Yeah, um, me too. Uh, before we get into uh, what we've been listening to, I think we ought to... Uh, introduce um, our second guest uh, for the night who could actually quite easily be um, confused for uh, uh, as the bass player of a highly established uh, Americana rock band. Uh, I'm referring to Wilco. Uh, I have with me or with us on the line tonight, John Sterrett, but it's not that John Sterrett, is it? Yes, and unfortunately not, uh, Morris. My bank balance doesn't indicate that I'm the same guy. <laughs> you know, I what? think his surname's got two T's. Right. I'm well, he, used to the one. I'm sure his bank balance isn't as big as um, uh, Jeff Tweedy, so I think you can take a little bit of comfort that true, you're, you're possibly closer to his bank balance than you suspect. Anyway, no, welcome to the show, John, uh, your first uh, episode here. So um, maybe just give a little bit of uh, a description about your... Um, music background, your love of music for uh, the listeners out there? Where do I start? Well, I suppose for me it, it started with Dylan and then it went on all the different um, branches out from there, you know, to the band, to Neil Young. I had to find someone that, you know, maybe sounded as different as Dylan and with Young and then it went on to Van Morrison and I think Morrison led me to Bruce. You know, I could see parallels between my love of Morrison's Astral Weeks mm sort of seeged into Bruce's The Wild and the Innocent. And then I think Bruce might have led me to Tom Waits and then out of, you know, probably not too much connectivity. I liked The Who, but more specifically Pete Townsend's solo career. I rate his solo career as one of the better ones of, you know, an artist that was in a major band. Mm, mm. I, I, you know, not, I guess not necessarily his later 
maybe a couple of his later failed concept albums, but particularly in the early to mid-'80s, I think he released a string of very good albums. And, and then I guess, you know, sort of those forefathers of, you know, 60s, late 60s, led me looking elsewhere and, and I found probably three gentlemen that are in the, you know, country, folk, rock vein in Steve Earle, John Hyatt and a guy called John Prime who probably arguably still to this day I might rate as one of the few men that might, you know, maybe you can say is a better songwriter than a Dylan or even a Springsteen. I've got a particular passion for John Prime. Sorry to interrupt there. I remember reading an interview with um, Steve Earle once where he said um, that Towns Van Zandt was the greatest songwriter who ever lived and he'd stand on Bob Dylan's coffee table in his cowboy boots and proclaim that. Yes. Very famous quote. Mm. And I think, though, it, like you take it from Dylan himself, he, uh, he, had, he had this... And I won't be able to read, uh, repeat it verbatim, but he had this brilliant um, quote about John Prine recently where he said, John Prine, he went, yeah, he said, sheer Proustian Midwestern mind warps. <laughs> now, we barely know what that means, but I thought, well, that, as long as Bob does. Coming from Bob, that's probably pretty high praise. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, probably in recent years, again, I... You know, I guess because of my Dylan beginning, I'm always seeking out someone with a with a bad voice and a strong message. <laughs> and um, I've, you know, probably the last ten years or eight or nine years ago, uh, I stumbled upon the Drive By Truckers. Um, I rate the two the two mainstays of that band, Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley, as I think they're two of the finest songwriters of the last ten or fifteen years. They've only really started to have some, you know, smidgen of commercial success the last four or five years. And um, even, like we were talking about The Sopranos earlier, I think through the um, closing credits of The Sopranos, I stumbled upon The Tinder Sticks, um, uh, an English band out of Nottingham. Um, they, their song Tiny Tears was um, on one of the, if not the last season, maybe the second last season of The Sopranos. And... I think Jeff mentioned it on other podcasts of uh, a band like the Gaslight Anthem has really um, caught my imagination. I was lucky enough to see them in a small pub here in Sydney, the Annandale, mm. um, before they got too big. Or they were probably just on the cusp of getting some notice. And, and the Gaslight Anthem then sort of put me down a sort of a strange path, old fogey, where I sort of... Um, these modern punk bands like Against Me and um, to lesser to lesser success Hot Water Music but what where, what I found with these guys these punk bands they, they, they have interesting uh, main men or, or chief songwriters that there seems to be a phenomenon with punk bands now that their their main lead singers will go out on solo careers and there's a guy called Chuck Reagan that was out of Hot Water Music uh, they're one of the earliest um, you know, I guess American punk bands from the early '90s, and they're an inf they're, he, he's very much and Hot Water Music, are very much an influence of the Gaslight Anthem. Um, yeah, so I guess you know from my early days of you know being absolutely obsessed with Dylan, it's led me on a I guess roughly a 30-year journey of every week I'm trying to find the next person to be you know, that I'll be obsessed about, and 
most of the time, you know, it's failed, you know, failed experiments or, you know, albums you buy that don't quite work out. But every now and then I, you know, I'll stumble upon a drive-by truckers Southern Rock Opera or a, a Richmond Fontaine Poster Wire or a Jesse Marlin Fine Art of Self-Destruction or Gaslight Anthem's first album, Sink or Swim, and it sort of goes on. You know, it's the... It's almost the same uh, euphoria you feel when you first listen to, you know, Darkness on the Edge of Town or Astral Weeks or Blonde on Blonde. Yeah, I mean, so that's that's the continuing challenge, isn't it, for, for music fans like us who've been, you know, listening for years and years. And, you know, when we can find something that the word you used was euphoria, if we can still sort of find that, then that's, that's just absolutely fantastic because we're you know, really very much could be in danger of... Um, uh, settling into what's comfortable for us, and uh, I mean, maybe there's no real problem with that, you know. But, um, but you know, the excitement of discovering something new—I know it's been said by a lot of people before—but you know, that, I mean, that's, I guess, what makes us, you know, passionate about music, not just passionate about particular personalities. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I think related to that, Morris, um, I've done a lot—not so, not so much last couple of months, but certainly this last year or so. Going back and rediscovering, you know, artists that I used to listen to a lot, um, and you know, picking up one of their early albums that I haven't listened to in years, and almost rediscovering it with the same euphoria as you would discover a new artist. Mm. Mm. Um, well, like I, better, I better, I better not really mention who, because generally the podcasts fall apart when we say his name. <laughs> oh no, not not. Oh. But I am oh. going to see him live in Melbourne tomorrow night. Um, uh, so, so you're going to see Voldemort. That's the guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Voldemort, uh, for those of you who want to go back to episode two, was the, the guy who we were going to cover with his album, Bring the Little Voldemorts. Um, and, and I think what was his big song, uh, Have a Little Faith in Voldemort, or something mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, we, we can't say his name, otherwise um, the recording fails and, and, and our internet connection drops out. It's, it's been scientifically proven. How, how, how? <laughs> no, it's high, high, high. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, no, thanks for uh, giving us uh, the details of, uh, of that journey, John. Um, and, and I'm just really thrilled that it's uh, finally, you sh we should uh, also be talking a lot about your journey towards Skype, but, you know, you don't want to be laughed at by all the 16-year-old you know, uh, technological whizzes out there. Yeah, I didn't think it would take me 17 shows, but uh, <laughs> once you dangled the carrot of uh, Wrecking Ball and Springsteen in front of me and I, and I, I knew I missed the boat on, um, which I thought was a very interesting, your first podcast, mm. Darkness versus the Wild Innocent, and I thought I'd better get my IT act together. Yeah, it only took you another 16 episodes to do it, but you know, yeah. I, like never. I, I should employ a 14-year-old or a 16-year-old. <laughs> I should probably also point out um, that uh, uh, the whole reason why the three of us know each other is through the Greasy Lake uh, Springsteen Forum. And, uh, you know, there's a big <laughs> to all those people who say that um, uh, recordings of indeterminate origin are uh, a bad thing because um, it, it basically led us to, uh, uh, you know, to discover each other, you know, our, our common love of not just Springsteen, but, you know, other great artists uh, who are uh, also fantastic songwriters in a similar vein. And um, hence this podcast. 
is the result. So um, yeah, Greasy Lake. That was a that was a meeting of the minds, wasn't it? Certainly was. Mm. And I guess that that's the other part, I suppose, of all you know everyone's journey now. And it's you, you've got the you've you've got the official albums, and then you've got this shadow land of all the live recordings. And you know we're just you know the the riches that are available to us that are just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Certainly yeah. are. All right, look, before we get into Springsteen seriously, and we have you know a lot of stuff to talk about, no doubt, um, let's just take a quick digression. And um, I like to go around asking uh, my co-presenters um, what they've been listening to of late. Now, I know that the other day, John, you said oh, you weren't sure because you, you'd sort of been listening to so much, you didn't think you'd be able to put it into like you know three minutes or less. But do you think you know, you've got yeah, a couple yeah, of things look, you want to talk about? Yeah, look, um, I guess... Yeah, probably probably what I've been doing lately. It's it's a it's another extension of what I spoke about there, trying to find new artists. And the the thing that I've really enjoyed probably, I've only really uh, the last twelve months or so. I love finding artists on the internet. You know, it might be a recommendation from a recommendation that leads me to someone, or or I read a review that you think, oh, I like the sound of you know that artist's aesthetic or whatever. Is artists that you know they're they're either on very small independent labels or they're, they're just running their own website. Mm. And um, going back probably several years, I found a guy out of um, Chicago called Tom Laverack. Can, can't uh, recommend his music high, highly enough. Mm. And in recent or recent months, uh, I found a guy called Otis Gibbs. Uh, that he's very much um, in the vein of a modern-day Woody Guthrie. He's travelling around America uh, with an acoustic guitar and a laptop by the sound of it. And he's got albums like Grandpa, titled Grandpa Walked a Picket Line. Okay. So it really is a Woody Guthrie. Um, very political, um, great, gruff, deep voice, and a very, very clever songwriter. Mm. Well, keep him in mind because... When we come to speak about Wrecking Ball, um, as I think we've discussed off air, um, there's going to be some Woody Guthrie comparisons, and and please feel free to bring uh, Otis Gibbs into the conversation. Yeah. Um, so okay, so those two guys you've been listening to a fair bit of late. Yeah, and I think the guy I've I've um, tried to terrorise you guys a bit with. Uh, I rediscovered an artist I, I probably um, dallied with maybe a decade or so ago. Called Tom Russell, mm. Californian songwriter. Again, you know, for uh, our Springsteen audience, he's probably his songwriting style might be you know in and around Springsteen, Ghost of Tom Jody era. You know, maybe that's a poor and oversimplistic uh, comparison, but he's an artist that uh, I feel there's not many that possibly. They've got. He's gotten better as his career is, um, and he's you know he's reasonably reasonably mature artist. I think he's you know give or take around about sixty. He's been going since the early seventies, so he's of a similar age to Springsteen. But I actually think the last five to ten years of his career, his albums are act. He's actually releasing his best albums, whereas you know possibly all all the artists we spoke about before, and even you know even someone as great as Bruce. They're defined by you know their masterpiece, you know whether we think it's the wild and the innocent or darkness. Whereas this guy Tom Russell, I think, is actually he he may have written his best album last year. Okay, I find that yeah, that's I think that's unique. Mm. Um, look, I, I certainly say that there are um, 
some artists who've, who've uh, been doing the hard yards for many years who uh, haven't really embarrassed themselves in recent times. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, two that come to mind. I mean, actually, I've got to confess, I wasn't that crazy about the last Richard Thompson album. Uh, but prior to that, pretty much, I, I thought he was um, uh, certainly maintaining a high, high standard, if not even getting better. And mm -hmm. um, the, the last four or so Ry Cuda albums have, um, you know, can stand as tall as anything in his career. So, uh, but I, I get what you mean that it, it's, it's a bit of a rarity. And I think you guys touched upon it in a in an earlier podcast, and I think, and I think you guys um, came to the conclusion, probably similar to myself, an artist that maybe if we could not take his last two or three. Um, had an incredible run, and that's Steve Earle from when he really got out of jail, um, got clean. Uh, I thought he had a he he had an incredible run of albums. So Jeff, you went to see Steve Earle the other night. Want to give us a bit of a um, a bit of a rundown how that was? Um, I went and saw Steve Earle on Thursday night, and then again on Friday night. Um, he was fantastic. It was just him by himself, um, with a variety of oddly shaped stringed instruments mm. um but he worked hard um and he, he put a lot into it um i mean steve Earle always works hard on stage whether he's solo or with a band but um the most recent album which i think i don't know if i in one of your podcasts or, or privately in conversation morris um was very disparaging about his most recent one you know i'll never get out of this world alive i think it's called yeah i think you mentioned it yeah and, you know, I basically slated it, hated it. Um, I got a bit more into two or three of the songs, you know, listening to some before I, I went along to see him. And he played a handful of songs, probably played the whole album over the course of both nights. And it really brought it alive for me. Okay. And, mm -hmm. he, you know, he said a couple of words about one or two of the songs here and there. And um, really, I, I've had nothing else on the... Uh, the CD player since since then really apart from Wrecking Ball of course um, I had no. I had another listen to that but you know, I've had that on enough um, <laughs> yeah to, to to be able to talk about it now I mean do another podcast in two months on it I'll have totally changed my views of course but, um, <laughs> no the the, the Steve L shows were were fantastic um the um the Corner Hotel it's a typical tiny little band room yeah um. You know, regardless of where you stand in the room, your view's obscured by a pillar in some manner. Uh, um, I, I tell you, I've, I've been a veteran of many shows, and they've changed the architecture around a fair bit from um, when I was going there like 30 years ago. But uh, let me tell you what, the view is still shit. Ah, yeah, they've got big screens now as well, would you believe? In a place yes, it's yes, I've seen same that. Size as your, same size as your average uh, suburban backyard, you know? Mm. But no, he was uh, he was excellent. He played um, he played a whole bunch of stuff from you know going right back the catalogue. Um, and uh, you know, he put a new spin on some of the some of the old songs. And you know, obviously the largest element of the audience just wanted to hear Copperhead Road, but uh, you know which he obliged both nights. And, you know, uh, some of the way the way he made some of the new stuff come to life with with just a little bit of a word of explanation about you know what he was thinking and why he was thinking. Now that album for me is uh, is right up there, and obviously you know when we did our podcast, I forget exactly when it wasn't too long ago when we did the Steve Earle podcast, hmm. um, and I'd rediscovered was it El Corazon when was the the album that we did. Yep. 
Um, I, I think I remember writing to you guys a couple of days later that I'd discovered this brand new artist. You should check him out. His name's Steve Earle. <laughs> and they had all these uh, all these amazing albums. Um, yeah, so I mean, I've been listening to a fair bit of, of Steve Earle. And, uh, you know, Kate, my partner, has decided that there should be more Steve Earle in the house. Um, he should be played more often because she came second night and really enjoyed it. So you really, you really ought to marry that woman, I think. I fully intend to next year. Oh, good lad. I don't know if she'll uh, she'll be willing, but anyway, we'll see. <laughs> so, um, so uh, besides uh, Steve Earle, what else has been uh, in your player? Uh, well, John John alluded to it a bit. Um, I've been reading that the the new Gaslight Anthem records just about ready to come out, um, and the, the the band are extremely excited by it. But you know, all bands always are, I suppose. Um, but I have been, so I got back into listening to some, some more of those. Um, I was, you know, particularly for a long time, I haven't been able to listen to uh, American slang at all. I just can't do it. I'll go into the reasons about that offline. It's uh, not one I want to say on the podcast. <laughs> um, not funny. And, uh, you know, so I was listening back to Sink or Swim and, and the 59 Sound. Um, and, of course, um my my current favorite favorite album of all time, which has to be Elsie by the Horrible Crows. So who is that? Uh, Elsie by the Horrible Crows. I, I better make note of that. You've never mentioned that one before. <laughs> I thought I'd put that one. In. I thought I'd sneak that one. In. Um, I'd be interested to hear uh, what John's thoughts on Elsie by the Horrible Crows are is if he if he's listened to it. Yeah, Jeff. I probably I've never really gave you a full answer. I love it. Yeah, it's a great album, isn't it? But the funny thing was, it took me two or three listens to get into it. Me too. Uh, and when I did look, you know, I, I was going to say in my, um, you know, little opening there that, like, probably I echo your thoughts and, and a lot of, um, you know, music writers around the world. You know, Springsteen is, you know, often spoken as a baton um, carrier or a torch carrier. I think Fallon, you know, could be the guy that will um, carry the baton into, you know, deep into this century. Incredible talent. I, I love his voice, uh, love his songwriting. He's got, um, you know, Springsteen-esque uh, ability to throw in hook after hook. Yeah. Uh, I really like it. But I, I and I, I love the Gaslight Anthem, but I, I, I'm just a sucker for that sink or swim where, mm. where it has still, you know, a bit of their punk aesthetic and um, that uh, Never Sink Banks song. Yes. Just yeah. You know, really, really beautiful song in amongst, you know, that furious, you know, six or seven really fast, you know, um, North New Jersey punk, as they were called, uh, coming out of the scene. And then, then it hits, you know, a beautiful uh, you know, semi-acoustic song like that. I think, yeah, a major talent. And, yeah, probably it took me a good while, Jeff, uh, but it was uh, and still is an album I seem to play in the car a lot. Yeah, I do too. Actually, it, it, it's got it's good car music, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so um, so those have been your uh, listening pleasures of late. That's been that's been me of late. Obviously, mm. I'm going to be you know because of of going out tomorrow night. I'll probably be lis listening to uh, Voldemort. Voldemort, right? Mm. Yeah. Have a little faith in Voldemort. Um, I also wanted to throw one in that. Um, the the iPod shuffly shuffly function thing can be extraordinarily annoying, but it can also be quite interesting because it's thrown up uh, a while ago. I uh, can I say I downloaded some albums from by a band and stuck them on there, 
and never actually got around to listening to it. And this last week, it's thrown in three songs, and I've loved every single one of them. So I'm going to have to go and systematically check out the the albums. I think I've got three on there. And that's a band that you guys all know them, uh, the Wallflowers. Uh, yeah, Jacob Dylan's. Yeah. Yeah. I'd never. I mean, I've been aware of their existence. I've never listened to them. No, I don't think I'd even actually heard them. And then I heard uh, three songs. One of them, Into the Mystic, um, which I think is a fantastic song. Um, and you guys are probably going to tell me now why the Wallflowers are, are a complete bunch of rubbish. Um, I, I'd be a liar if I say that I'd listen to them that much, to be absolutely honest with you. Yeah, worth a go then. Okay. Yeah, look, I, I, I liked them. Um, I haven't listened to, listened to them for many years. Hmm. But yeah, no, I've, uh, I've been quite quite taken by them. Um, Jeff, have you, know, you tried um, Jacob Dylan? You know the I guess the main wallflower. He's he's done at least one, maybe two, from memory. Interesting solo albums where he's been probably a little bit. The solo albums have been more, you know, in his father's um, acoustic vein. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll definitely definitely have a. I look for that, and, and and just just while I remember as well, um, I don't know if you guys have read that the the new Justin Towns Errol uh, yes. record mm. has come out. Is that good? I've not heard it, but the reviews that I've I've read, um, I read a couple of reviews, and one of them said that this is this is the song, this is the album that could make him really big. Mm. And another review says this is the biggest load of twaddle ever. Oh, so, so <laughs> I think he's polarised the critics. Mm. That's fantastic. That's that. That's better than them all saying, "Well, it's all right. It's mediocre." Um, yeah. No, I, I like polarity. I like it. Um, all right. Look, I'll I'll give a uh, quick rundown on things I've been listening to over the last couple of weeks. Um, now, since uh, over the last few weeks, I've gone and started up uh, a Facebook page for uh, the for the program. And um, one of the nice things about it is, uh, you know, besides there being a lot of uh, vigorous uh, and some not so vigorous music discussion on um, on the page, but uh, some of the people have been sort of posting things that they've been listening to, and you know, I've been finding who's that? Who's that artist? Never heard of them. Gee, that sounds good. Or in some cases, not not for me. But um, uh, one one of the uh, folks on the board, um, Alex Ladd, uh, aka Piccoloaf, co-host of the uh, wonderful Silver and Gold film podcast, uh, had posted on the page saying that he'd gone and picked up, uh, I'm not sure if he'd picked up recently or he just recently rediscovered a band called Galaxy 500. And it seems like I, I'm supposed to be hanging my head in shame for not having heard them before. My, uh, my good friend Adam Fleet um, had sent me a message saying I'm, I'm incredulous that you of all people haven't heard these guys. Um, but uh, they put out an album called On Fire, uh, which, I've, uh, which I've got myself a copy of. Uh, and Alex had gone and put up um, a YouTube clip of uh, one of their songs, and I just went nuts about it. I thought, wow, you know, this, is a, this is a great melodic band. I mean, I know that a lot of people are sort of into the Jesus and Mary chain, which is maybe what I closely what I can think to compare them to. The Jesus and Mary Chain don't do it for me, but Galaxy 500 certainly do. certainly sounds like a little bit like them and maybe a little bit like uh, The Church. Um, I don't know, is this a band that either of you are familiar with? No, I'm, I'm hanging my head uh, probably more in shame than you, uh, Morris. I've heard the name. 
Well, then you were one step ahead of me. Yeah. Because I hadn't even heard that. How about you, Jeff? No, I'd never heard of them at all. I, I, I do recall seeing that, that uh, posting on the website. Uh, mm. No, never heard of them. I'm a big fan of the, uh, the Jesus and Mary chain, however. Uh, well, look, you know, given that you know, I, I'm, I'm in such esteemed company as the two of you, I think I can... I think I can lift my head up and not feel so ashamed anymore <laughs> that I hadn't heard of them. But, but uh, yeah, look, I did uh, go out and get this album on fire, and I'm really, really enjoying it. It, it, it to me, it sort of works despite itself because you know the, the playing is fairly basic, and you know every song is you know only like you know about three or four chords, and uh, the the singing is, for lack of a better term, unconventional. But for all of that, I just love it. I don't know what it is, but. Um, it's really, really wonderful stuff. Are they still together, Morris? Uh, look, I don't know. I, I, I suspect not. I think they're a band of their time, but um, maybe I should look that up. Uh, but yeah, no. But certainly, th this is an album I'd highly recommend, and, and uh, many thanks to uh, to Pickleife for uh, pointing that one out on fire. Yeah, really, really cool album. Um, what else? Uh, I went recently to uh, one of the local secondhand record shops and picked up an album that I, I had on CD many years ago. And uh, for the life of me, I don't know where it went, but I found it again on vinyl. And I thought, look, I'll pick up the vinyl. It was only $8. And it was Hunters and Collectors album, Ghost Nation. Now, over the summer uh, break, uh, when my family and I went away, I, I borrowed from my mate Adam uh, a copy of the Mark Seymour autobiography uh, called 13 Ton Theory. And look, I never considered myself the greatest Hunters and Collectors fan, but um, I'm a sucker for a really great rock book. And this is one of the best. Uh, really, really entertaining. Seymour is a fantastic writer, and he certainly presents uh, the story of um, all the dealings of uh, working in what was um, nominally a, a socialist-run band. Um, in a really entertaining way. And it sort of got me back to thinking about that album, Ghost Nation, and you know, the big single off that was When the River Runs Dry. And that was a song I've always had a lot of time and affection for. I know that like nominally they were divided up into three periods. The first period where they were very percussive and more writing songs around individual riffs and a lot of percussion. And then the second, they, they got rid of the, the heavy sort of sinks and logs and stuff and percussion. They sort of went to more conventional songwriting methods. Uh, and then there was that third period where they just sort of um, uh, went even more commercial uh, for, for better or for worse. Um, and, and I don't know, they did, I don't think they did anything in the States, but that was huge here uh, for a time. But this Ghost Nation, I think is from that second period. And there's some really fantastic songwriting and Neil Finn and the Bull Sisters make uh, some background vocal appearances on it. Um, yeah, it's just a great album. It's really cool to uh, hear that on vinyl. Um, what's, what else? Uh, okay, now, um, another group that uh, Adam had introduced me to via our a cappella group uh, a couple of years ago was uh, the Decemberists. Um, and they have a new uh, live album called We All Raise Our Voices to the Air. Now, I bought their album, The King Is Dead, about a year ago and um, really, really enjoyed that. Had Gillian Welsh. Uh, singing uh, harmony vocals on a lot of the tracks on there. But um, this live album is fairly representative. I think every album has got at least a couple of songs uh, represented on this live album. And uh, it, it's really, really great. Either you Decemberists fans? 
I'm hiding my head. Oh dear. I imagine, I imagine, John, that if you haven't heard them, I imagine that they'd be the sort of band that you'd really enjoy. Yeah, look, uh, um, Morris, I'm guilty. Uh, I've got at least one, maybe two albums on the iPod. Yep. Um, but I haven't given them fair enough airplay. Uh, well, look, yeah, I, I'd urge you to uh, uh, pursue it. I know that um, I, I think the big one for a lot of fans is uh, The Crane Wife. And uh, yep. the full three-part, 16-minute version of that makes an appearance here on the live album. They're, they're, I think their, their strength is they're really good storytellers. Yes. Um, and if you, if you like, your, if you like uh, your songs with a bit of a tail, then um, they're the band for you. That no, uh, sounds good. So, yeah. So, look, I got hold of that. Um, look, I, I, there are a few more things I could mention, but I think just the one last thing that I'll mention this time around uh, I bought a, um, a compilation, and actually, this is in a little way, uh, maybe due to you, John, um, you had gone and urged me and sent me a copy of um, a recent album by New Zealand group Bats, and um, I bought uh, a week ago a double CD called Tally Ho, and it's a compilation of bands who appeared on New Zealand's Flying Nun label. Yeah. Who, they were like in the eighties, um, really very big independent label. And um, they had, uh, you know, I, I guess their more famous acts were bands like the Bats, mm. uh, the Clean, uh, the Chills, um, and the Headless Chickens, I think. Um, so this is a double album. Uh, I mean, they, I don't, they, they call it cleverly Tally Ho, Flying Nun's Greatest Bits, because they don't think that they had any song that really sort of sold millions of copies, but they sold enough, it would seem, to keep going. And, um, you know, I'd always been aware of their reputation, and that Bats album that you sent me was something that I really enjoyed. Um, another album that sort of sounded very much like The Church. Um, but... Um, yeah, no, there's some really, really good songs on this, and I'm determined. I want to go seek out, um, in particular, uh, an, an album, even if it's just like a greatest hits of uh, one of the Flying Nun uh, bands, The Chills. Uh, they have a, uh, an album called Heavenly Pop Hits, uh, named after their song Heavenly Pop Hit, um, and that's that's just gorgeous. Uh, some you know really wonderful. Um, it, it, these songs give pop a good name. Yeah, I, I, I read about that uh, Flying Nun compilation and was tempted myself when I had my little The Bats um, interlude. must have been late-ish last year. Mm, mm. Oh, you, you'd like it. If you like The Bats, um, I mean, it doesn't all sound like that. No. But, um, but if you like that, then it should steer you towards some of these other bands. And um, I mean, well, there's a couple of things on here which I think yeah could take or leave, but a good chunk of it is really wonderful stuff. And certainly, if you're not familiar with anything else on their roster, I, I love a good compilation. It's also like a good snapshot of that time. And I, I knew very little about New Zealand music, and, and this is probably a good place as any to start. It's, it seems to be the like I was quite interested when I was reading the back history. You know, the Dunedin sound, mm. and and the bats. I think are the you know, they, they go way back, like as far as around about 1982, which, you know, I found impressive. Right. So, um, you know, they, they, I suspect they've probably spent some time on hiatus and yes. like every other like every other band, you know, went off to do other things or to yes. be Yes, and I think even you mentioned um, 
one of the bands, The Clean. I think it's a an outshot outshot of the um, main songwriter out of the Bats, whose name escapes me at the moment. Okay. Yeah, I, I could be wrong on that. Well, I think it's their song "Tally Ho" that um, this uh, double CD is actually named after. So, mm. uh, obviously, the clean figure quite uh, importantly in Flying Nun's history. Mm. All right, look, I think at this stage we're um, 35 minutes into the show, so we should probably have a little bit of a break and uh, then come back. And uh, uh, before we get into the album of uh, The Night Wrecking Ball uh, in great detail, we'll um, just have a little bit of a chat about uh, Springsteen in general, our thoughts on uh, the man as a songwriter till now. And uh, then after that, we'll get into Wrecking Ball proper. But let's have a bit of a break um, and uh, we'll be back uh, in a minute or so, you're listening to uh, Morris, John and Jeff, and you're listening to Love That Album. We'll be back shortly. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. Welcome back. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris in uh, one part of Melbourne, Jeff in another part of Melbourne, and John in Sydney. And we're uh, all here to discuss Bruce Springsteen's new album, Wrecking Ball. And uh, I thought, though, before we get into that proper, we'll have uh, just a little bit of a chat about Springsteen in general and how he figures in our musical lives. Um, so, uh, which one of you two wants to go first? But where, you know, what was the first thing that you heard that really knocked you out about Springsteen? All right, I'll appoint one. Jeff. <laughs> I was just trying to gather my thoughts there for a moment. It's such a broad um, topic, isn't it? Yeah, where do you start? Where do you start with with, with a, a music artist that's been, you know, one of your sort of core favourites for many, many years now? Um, I think I've, I I do remember when I bought Born to Run. Um, it was about the third or fourth Springsteen album that I bought, and I was, you know, working my way through buying them all. Um, I'd heard it. I'd heard it before, but I couldn't think where, because um, I was, you know, I was very sort of young and naive in those days as to, to music, other than you know the top forty that I was seeing on the, the TV every week, um, and that was what early to mid eighties. So um, we're talking about some seriously embarrassing music back then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, the first um, the the first Springsteen music that I actually ever bought was the single version of Dancing in the Dark. Okay. That was my route into Springsteen, and I'd heard him because I used to listen to late-night radio under the covers at night when I was about 13 years old. Mm. Um, and they started playing this song called The River, and I could never, 
catch who it was by. But it just, you know when you hear music and it just does something? It just moves you somehow. Mm, mm. It's difficult to explain exactly why and what it is, but it was just, I, I knew I wanted to find out who that was, and I knew I wanted to hear more. W uh, was it the storytelling aspect? I think it was, I think it was a bit of everything. You know, it, it, it was the story, it was a, kind of a sad story. I've always been a sucker for sad stories. Mm. And, but it was just the rock and roll style of the music, you know, and the piano playing and, you know, it was all, it just, it just all worked on so many different levels for me and it, it, it just somehow affected me. It remains one of my favorite songs to this day. And, um, yeah, shortly after that, you know, the, the first release of Born in the USA before it went mega, the first release of the singles before they even got huge airplay, um, I got into Dancing in the Dark through the same, um, same radio show at night and, um, also, that's when I first heard Jackson Brown playing um, Lawless Avenues. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was uh, that was it. And once I discovered that, that this, this Springsteen guy, you know, I thought he was some some new guy on the block, you know. <laughs> rushed off down to the record store to see if I could find anything by him, and, and there was the there was the Born in the USA album, which I immediately bought, and. Um, I found the river and Born to Run, and you know I wanted the river really, really badly. But I think it was, um, I think it was like twelve pounds ninety nine because it was a double album. Mm, I, was, mm, I, was, mm. I was fourteen; I didn't have twelve pounds ninety nine. <laughs> I had to save up for weeks and weeks to get that one, and then uh, eventually, just before I got enough, my mum took pity on me and bought it for me. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm on, I think, my third vinyl copy of it because I wore the first two out. Wow! And it was the first album that I bought in Australia because. Uh, the CDs got packed in a in a box on the trip over, yep. which was which was on a ship somewhere, and I made a horrible mistake by not packing all the Springsteen in the uh, the hand luggage. Oh uh, no! So I had to go out and buy a whole load more. So I've got double copies of quite a lot of the albums there. Is an album you couldn't be without. No, yeah, and you know from from there on, you know I, I followed his career closely, being fortunate enough to see him a number of times and. Um, uh, including you know a couple of nights at the the last run in Giant Stadium when Wrecking Ball uh, made its first appearance as a as a song. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think with that that's that's probably not a bad little segue for me to hand on to John. Yeah, I guess that's why I paused, um, Morris. What a monumental question! Yeah, you know, where to start? But <laughs> actually, Jeff sparked some memories. I came into Springsteen reasonably late, like for a music obsessive. Yes, I think I must have been really, or I definitely was. I was really into my Dylan, the band Neil Young, Van. And as I said earlier, I think I think some some of the you know history I read of Van, they kept referring to this American guy, Bruce Springsteen. You know, he's He's got a bit of Van's scat singing. He's got a bit of Van's, you know, use of jazz or soul. And really, it wasn't until um, I remember I, I someone had told me about the Dancing in the Dark single, and I was a little bit. Um, I, I, I don't think he he got into his. He was just shy of his global success. But I bought the Born the USA album, mm. and and just when I heard, you know, those first few lyrics of um, Born the USA. And and the and the voice, uh, you know, corny as it sounds, it spoke to me, and I went, you know, this guy is impossibly good. Mm. You know, I had the same rush of, you know, the first time I, you know, Dylan, you know, converted me, or, you know, the first time I heard Neil Young, and I said, this voice, this you know combination of the music is, you know, someone of that standard. 
And, you know, I've, I've had an interesting journey with Bruce where, you know, he, he was sort of invisible to me for a while. I think I may have even fell for some of the Born the USA backlash and, you know, he might have languished a bit after Tunnel of the Love and, you know, he had the double, the two albums that came out in the early 90s simultaneously. You know, I actually didn't mind them, but, you know, probably share the view that, you know, they, they, may, they may have made one very good album. Mm. Um, and then again, he sort of, he disappeared he, for me um, and he reappeared with The Ghost of Tom Joad. Uh, then I then I might have lost touch with him again, um, but I guess two things sort of re- really rekindled my uh, love of Bruce and appreciation of him was discovering the Greasy Lake website, meeting mm-hmm. guys like Jeff and yourself. Uh, I discovered it roughly about the same time as he released the Rising album, and I know uh, Morris. I think when we were doing a practice for this podcast. You, you've got an opinion on that album, and I'll be interested to hear Jeff's. But that album absolutely floored me, and I understand. You know, I understand it might be, you know, four songs too long or whatever. But I just, out of the you know the ashes of September 11, I thought a very very mature commentary uh, on that event, and I think probably why why I love Springsteen so much and we may touch upon it with this recent release, is when he is thematic, you know, when he, when he has a narrative, you know, it's an album that has uh, an entire narr- narrative in of itself, you know, like Tunnel of Love was the divorce album. Mm, mm. And, and, and so from, from then on, from the rising, from the accessibility where I seem to have a lot of Dylan training partners, but I never really got a lot of uh, Springsteen shows, you know, and they were very few and far between. So it didn't really, the fire wasn't constantly kindled. Uh, and then with Greasy Lake, wham, bang, every, you know, the top 50 greatest shows of all time, the top 25 DVDs and, mm. and, and Jeff, you know, and, and, the, and there was a little contingent of Australian uh, participators in Greasy Lake, um, a couple of friends over in New Zealand, and all of a sudden, from about 2002 until about the end of 2009, when the Working on a Dream tour finished, I, you know, Spring, I, Springsteen was the artist I got, you know, more live shows than anyone, and it probably coincided with me getting a little bit tired of Dylan. You know, his voice blew out at around about you know, 2006 or 2007, he, you know, he's, Dylan possibly got in a bit of a rut as far as, you know, albeit he was making, I feel, very good albums, but I don't think great albums as the critics were, um, you know, giving him the platitudes for. I felt it was Dylan, D- Dylan, Dylan playing Dylan. You know, he was treading water, whereas I really liked the Rising album. Even, I, I even felt that, you know, probably because of the seriousness of some of the topics, you know, some of the much maligned songs like, you know, Mary's Place or whatever, I felt they were a, um, you know, they were a tension breaker or whatever um, between, you know, between some of the more serious topics. And then, you know, he, he released, a, I, I think, a very good album in Magic. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, um, Working on a Dream, I think, was easily the... Um, yeah, probably the, in my opinion, the weakest album of his career. Um, but what I got to appreciate over the last, I guess, seven to eight years 
it's just, in my opinion, how impossibly good he is live. Mm. You know, and if, if, if different artists have their, you know, have their um, their thing, you know, Dylan is, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's very, um, sounds like an overzealous fan and, uh, and a bit, you know, gushing to say this, but I think incredible live artist uh, and it's an incredible combination of voice, um, uh, musical ability without without being a virtuoso on anything, but I think his sheer emotional connect the, the the emotional connection he can get with his fan base, and I think you know genuine genuine sincerity on the message he's trying to put across. I I think uh, we're having this discussion. Um, I can't remember if it was from our practice run or just a phone call or something like that that we had, but. Um, because you mentioned, like you know, his strength is the live forum and how um, how much effort he puts into it. Um, recently, we, we're also um, we've gone and shared with each other the knowledge that this uh, practice run for the Wrecking Ball tour, the show at the Apollo, was uh, the whole show was up on YouTube, mm. and I listened to it, and I think I said to one or both of you that. And I meant this actually in a good way, that he sounded like a snake oil salesman. Yes. Um, and if it's possible to say that I mean that in a good way, then I, I really do, because he was, you know, preaching fire and brimstone, and and all of a sudden, you know, these uh, these songs they really came to life in in a um, in such a way that well, I don't want to preempt, you know, whatever I'm going to have to say about the. Uh, about wrecking ball yet, but but suffice to say for the moment that um, that this this show he uh, he sounded enthused and and for someone of his uh, age and state of stage of his career, uh, political dissatisfaction has probably been a you know uh, a good thing for him. Um, he he found his he's found his calling, um, and he's. Uh, He's found a way to make these live shows um, really incredibly exciting. Uh, mm. It'll be interesting to see whether by, you know, show 60 or 70 of the uh, Wrecking Ball tour, he's still prowling the stage in quite the same way. Well, he's never uh, he's never run out of gas yet on on longer tours. And I mean, yeah, I know he's not, he's not as young as he was, but I think the Apollo show, um, great, as it, great as it is... Um, I think he was probably very, very aware of the fact that he was a man down and a very, very big man. Yeah, that. yeah. And, you know, he took it upon himself to make sure that that show, he was just larger than life. You know, mm. I, I think from some of the reports of, of some of the antics, um, yeah, but, you know, I think Bruce Live, there's always been an element of uh, of the preacher there. Um, you know, he's always done the the, the preacher rant type mm. thing at some stage during the during the proceedings. Quite often around introducing the band, and you know, on the last tour, it was at, it was at, you know the hilarious moments at the end where he was introducing the heart stopping, pants dropping, you know, kidney <laughs> shaking, earthquake in Viagra taking East Street band. <laughs> Um, in, you know, and a giant stadium along with you know Batman type uh, words coming up on the screen and and fireworks. So yeah. you know, yeah, snake oil salesman. But you know, I'll tell you, I'd buy it. Yeah, no, he's he's made a career of it. That's for I sure. Think he, I think he's got the ability. I I loved your snake oil salesman uh, quote 
Morris, and I used it actually, I think the next day or the day after when I was talking to a colleague at work. And I think you're spot on. And I think what's great about his, you know, his shtick is you know it's you know it's shtick and, and he knows it. And he's almost, you know, he's he's making fun of himself, but there's also there's you know there's a humour there, but you know you know when he when he actually then gets to playing the song, I think he's one of the few artists of his age that's been doing it for so long. I actually think he means it. He's still you know he's still that you know like um, I think when we some of his early biographies with Dave Marsh or whatever. Uh, he was in, you know, he was sitting in the, he was sitting in the audience watching the Who. He, you know, he's still that seventeen-year-old kid himself, mm. or, he, or he, he still understands what it's like to be that seventeen-year-old kid. And and, I, uh, and Jeff touched upon it then. What I find amazing about him, you know, we all follow other artists, and you know, Dylan can have his great nights, and he can have his definitely his off nights. I had friends that went to see Neil Young. Um, in Sydney the last time he was out here and Neil had an off night. He was very cranky and he was chastising people that weren't up and dancing, you know, and um, Van, you know, Van Morrison can definitely have, you know, on good nights he's got all the fireworks going and on, and on other nights he's just putting in a perfunctory performance. Mm. But Bruce never seems to have an off night. I think that's incredible. If he does, he doesn't show it. Yeah, what is it he says? He feels a responsibility to each member of the audience every night because that could be the only time that he ever gets to play to that guy and it could be the only time that guy's ever had the 50 bucks to pay for a ticket. Mm, yeah, it's a good quote. I think I've heard that somewhere along the line too. Yeah, I paraphrase horribly. Mm, no, no, no it, it's. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've heard the same thing. So, uh, so yeah, I think you've encompassed that really well. Um Okay, so as, as for my own introduction to Springsteen, um, I think back in 1980 when uh, The River came out and the big single was uh, Hungry Heart, and that was played uh, all over 3XY. Um, as, I mean, I guess, you know, whatever, other, whatever the other big songs of the year were, but um, uh, I, I mean, I'd been aware of the name, and how old was I at the time? Would have been about 15 or so. I would have been aware of him, but hadn't really paid attention and then you know this song was you know the big top 40 hit of the day and says wow you know this is this is really really good and uh you know eventually went and sort out bought the album and i but i didn't sort of go out and get the back catalog straight away um but i, I listened to the river over and over again and i think about 1984 so maybe about four years after the album came out and three or so after I'd bought the album, I picked up, I started to muck around with learning the guitar. And I think one of the first songs I ever taught myself was The River. Um, you, know, you know, just a few basic simple chords, but you know, we're saying, you are saying before Jeff about how it's one of your favorite songs. It's a, it's a sad tale and you know, you're a sucker for a sad tale. And I, I, I think I'd go along with that. Um, it, I mean, this is, uh, this is not necessarily a character who I knew or someone who, who, um, I'd identify with or whatever, but his, his tale, of, I guess this guy of a tale who, um, he'd done something in his life. He'd gotten his girlfriend pregnant. 
um, at a time when he could ill afford it. Uh, and, you know, there was no work and the economy was in the shit. Uh, but you know, he, I guess in some ways, he'd still recall the innocence of the time where he and his girlfriend would just sort of hang by the river and, um, and how wonderful it made them feel. But, you know, the river is dry. There is, you know, I guess that, that metaphor for, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the circumstances of their life, you know, the jobs are drying up. Um, whatever was good in their relationship before had dried up. Um, and, and, uh, you know, that river served as a great metaphor for his life. And yeah, a, a, a sad song, but a great song. And, um, I was, I was really chuffed with myself that that was something, one of the first songs that I learned. Um, yeah, just, just to add a little bit further to, to the significance of the river for me, um, my, uh, my old mum, at one stage, she, she came and said to me, you know, I've been hearing all this music coming out of your room, and some of it I quite like. Who is it? And, you know, so I, I, I don't know if anyone's ever made a mixtape for their mum, but mm-hmm. I made a mixtape for my mum of, of Springsteen, and she came to me afterwards and she said, you know, um, the river and Atlantic City, she said, uh, that guy has, I know nothing about him, but he's had a profound effect on you, and he's got poetry in his soul. And that's wow. um, that's something that I thought, wow, that's profound by my mom. And oh, a good, maybe 10, 15 years later on the reunion tour, I actually bought her a ticket to come with us to go and see wow. him in Manchester. Okay. And, you know, we were in the building. And, you know, by that stage, she she was familiar with a lot of his work. And just seeing the look on her face when he played the river, it was just one of the most emotional, just fantastic moments of joy ever for me. That's such a great story. That's incredible, Jeff. You should, I think you need to write that one down and send it in to Greasy Lake. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. I'm tearing up thinking about it at the moment. Mm. No, that's, uh, that's a lovely tale. Um, and, and what else did she identify with? I mean, because, you know, they, they, they're two great stories, but, you know, was she able to... Um, uh, accommodate things like uh, you know Rosalita or or she I don't think, think she quite went I don't think she quite went that that far back I think <laughs> she she liked the born to run stuff and the river and she just liked the the bit about the character in Atlantic City being so considerate um, you know giving his girl his jacket and that sort of thing she, she yeah. just like like telling her to put on her stockings because it was getting a bit chilly you know <laughs> it's mummy mum things. <laughs> There you go, Springsteen appealing to the to the maternal in us. Um, all right, look, um, I think yeah, we we could probably sort of have a really really long chat about uh, our affinity with Springsteen and these sorts of tales, but I think that's probably as good a spot as any to maybe take just another quick break, and um, then we'll get into uh, talking about the album that this show is supposed to be based around, which is the new Springsteen album called Wrecking Ball. You're listening to Love That Album. We'll be back in a moment. G-G-T-M-C Live For you Fresh Yeah Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service Breaking films down and turning them around Giving recommendations that are always on point Visit GGTMC.com for more information The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema Bringing class to the trash since 1977. Okay, we're back. 
uh, you're listening to Love That Album Podcast. This is a podcast where we take an album and dissect it and discuss every song and any other trivial details that we can think of about the album under question. And uh, today's show is Bruce Springsteen's latest album, Wrecking Ball. Uh, and with me on this show, I have uh, Jeff Smith in another part of Melbourne and John Stewart. Not in Chicago, but he's over there in Sydney. G'day, Morris. G'day, everyone, again. Good. We're all back with our glasses of water, cups of tea, and bottles of whiskey. <laughs> trying to avoid those things. All right. Um, so, yeah, look, we discussed this one. We've been discussing this one for a few weeks um, as just as a general concept, and I think it was inevitable that um, we were going to discuss this as a uh, as a podcast. You know, we you know, uh, basically for you listeners out there, Jeff and myself have been trying to convince the Skypophobic uh, John Stewart to uh, come onto the show and um, Springsteen releasing a new album. I thought if this wasn't going to get him over the Skype line, then nothing would. But very fortunately for us and for you listeners out there. John rose to the challenge, and uh, here we are. Um, so, all right. So, okay. So, generally, the format of the show, uh, John, is we discuss each song uh, in detail. Um, probably before we go song by song, are there any comments that you want to, you guys want to say about your thoughts about the album as a whole? Uh, first time you heard it, what you thought? Yeah. Well. I, I'll jump in on this one, Morris. Yeah, sure. I, I guess um, for me, um, I was very, I was wary. You know, um, as I said, you know, my opinion only. I felt he'd come off, you know, um, probably a something he was very passionate about and 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 maybe brave, but I felt he's he'd come off, you know, you know, arguably the weakest album of his career in working on a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't find, you know, I didn't find much in that album and probably it may be the only Springsteen album where, you know, I didn't even think there was even, you know, I guess other than The Wrestler, which kind of wasn't really, you know, was, but it wasn't really part of the album. Mm-hmm. I, I saw The Wrestler more as a standalone track. Yep. Uh, I was very wary. Uh, I felt, um, you know, I love the Working on a Dream tour, but I felt that the East Street Nation had gotten into maybe a little bit, and this is sacrilege to say, you know, I've just said all these great things about Bruce as a live performer, but I felt maybe a little bit of a nostalgic act, a uh, nostalgia act, you know, they were playing, the, the, you know, many of their classics, but um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, old, oldies rock, rock and roll. And when, when the announcement of the album came out and I went, oh, Wrecking Ball, you know, well, that, you know you're going to name a, a, an album after a song that you wrote for Giant Stadium. And I went, hmm. And, oh, and, and Land of Hope and Dreams is one of the, one of the songs on the album. And that, that underwhelmed me. And I thought, you know, uh, and I think it had been, you know, the scuttlebutt on Greasy Lake and other Springsteen websites. Oh, maybe he's run out of ideas. Maybe he's run out of lyrics. And to the contrary to all of that, and and I'm not too sure, Morris. I ever I've, I've sort of kept um, 
uh, mum's the word as far as revealing to you my thoughts on the album, but sure. I've absolutely loved it. Despite, you know, you know what I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, yeah, look, you know, there might be a bit too much heavy production, but what he's done here, in, 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 again, in my, in my opinion, is what I, what I feel some of my other major influences haven't done, you know, whereas Dylan, I think, has released good Dylan albums, you know, but they're Dylan 101. Neil Young, I, he's tried, you know, as he always does, he's tried valiantly to do something different, but I, I can't really tell you the last time I feel he's released a genuinely great album. You know, he's, he's had his experiments, he's had his rants against George Bush, Van Morrison, I think, you know, great live artist when he's on his game, but I feel he's almost released the same album for the last 20 years. I was going to say it if you weren't, yep. Whereas Bruce here, um, I think he's done something different and to do it at 62, to do it after you've lost, you know, I guess, your main uh, foil and, and, and one, of, one of your other major uh, components of your sound, I think he's done... He, he's done what I don't like mature artists to do, and that's, you know, they, if they tread water artistically, I get a bit bored and, you know, I, a Neil Young album can come out now and, you know, I can take it or leave it. And I think he's come out with something really different, really contemporary, a different style of songwriting. He's, it's not character-driven. It's not geography-driven. It's, uh, you know, to me it's a, an album that's two parts. It's very angry. And then, then there's, you know, the, there's the hope and uplifting second half of the album. It's a different sonic palette he's put in there. And his voice sounds incredible. And I think, and you touched upon it, um, Morris, when we were talking, I think, off air, what's even, if, if, if I wasn't convinced early and, and yeah, I, look, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have really overt problems with the production because I thought, well, thank God it's not Brendan O'Byrne, at least it's some, O'Brien, at least it's someone different. You know, it's not that muddy sound that's possibly defined the last four or five albums, but it really hammered home to me what he can do with these songs live and what I feel, uh, everything I said, you know, earlier about perhaps the, the set being a little bit, you know, nostalgic it's come alive with now there's, you know, there's on any night there could be eight or nine songs that the E Street Band have only played once or three times or, or, and, and weren't even really uh, in, on, on those songs in the studio. Hmm. Jeff? Yeah, I'd agree with a lot of what John said there. Um, <clears throat> the Wrecking Ball song, of course, for me holds a, a special place for, for more than the reason that I actually, you know, saw it being performed live where it was supposed to be performed live at Giant Stadium, but um, I, mean, I think as both of you know, I, I kind of almost used it as a bit of an inspiration to take a ginormous wrecking ball to my own personal life about two years ago and, you know, changed jobs, changed wives, changed, um, you know, pretty much everything. Mm. Um, so it was really interesting to hear the, to hear that, ooh, it's called it's wrecking ball, you know, oh God, what's it going What's he going to do now? And, you know, how's he going to deal with that? How can a song about Giant Stadium being demolished two years ago still work? And, you know, it really does. Um, because I think it's taken on a whole new meaning in, in, in the time. And, but, yeah, I, was, I wasn't so much wary of this album. I was really looking forward to it. Um, I think for similar reasons to John, um, 
Working on a Dream, I thought was maybe half a good album. You know, there's, I think for me, there's there's maybe four four or so songs on there that I think will stand the test of time, and he'll probably get around to playing live at some stage on the tour. But um, just to, to echo what John was saying about the new songs and, and breathing life back into the set, um, with there being you know they've only been played a handful of times, that but I think that will communicate itself into a new energy and a sort of revisiting of the, the old back catalogue and the classics. Now, I, I think they'll take on a little bit of a new life themselves, you know. But I think we've, we've discussed, you know, sarcastically a few times, how many times do I need to hear Prove It All Night in Promised Land? Really, Bruce. Um, but I think, you know, the, with, with the, the ground that he's covered here, if he, if he takes that up, out on the road with him and introduces some of those kinds of sounds and arrangements and you know different ways of thinking which I mean certainly he's got a horn section again for the first time since uh, Tunnel of Love um, you know I, I think it could really change things up you know big time and, and looking at the you know, the pictures from the show um, he's certainly revamped everyone and moved them around their, their spaces on the stage again which he did after Tunnel of Love because he said you know they'd all been standing on the same spot for 20 years um, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing some more of the live stuff. I do have a couple of the, the early tour tour shows to listen to, so I'm really looking forward to, to getting into that. Well, I'm sorry to have to be the, um, the fly in the ointment, the, um, uh, the wrecking ball to uh, this wrecking ball discussion. Um, generally, I sort of find that these songs... Um, Okay, look, I'll go back a step. Uh, John, you went and mentioned that you're glad, as I certainly was, in a way, to see the back of Brendan O'Brien, and yet he was still at the desk for um, uh, Springsteen's Magic album, which I consider almost to be a career highlight. Um, absolutely love that, and given that both of those, both Magic and Wrecking Ball are albums, about uh, political disenchantment, um, at least in parts. Um, they both, to me, should have worked, um, but I've personally found that a lot of the uh, production work on this is just so bombastic. Um, it really takes away from what I think I could potentially enjoy about this album. And as, as I alluded to earlier while talking about the Apollo Theater, show uh, that we heard on YouTube. Um, it, it was only listening to that that maybe I got a little bit more excited about uh, music. Um, but just as it appears on, on the album, uh, I find a lot of it disappointing. Um, and I, I, look, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be alone in my views on the record. And I, what I really believe is that there's a really fantastic folk record that's struggling to find its way uh, out of um, an unashamed stadium rock production here. Um, and this, in some way, this could have been, and I see this as a positive thing, this could have been a Seeger Sessions 2, um, and that's an album that I really love. But I was, I was having this conversation with um, uh, one of the fellows who works at, at the CD store here in Melbourne, and he is, he, he tells me, he is, uh, if not anti-Springsteen, he is not someone that he's ever particularly cared for. But he loves this album, and he sees 
that um, okay, so an artist who I was trying to compare Springsteen to, at least in terms of his politics, is Ry Cooda. And I thought Ry Cooda's album of last year, uh, Pull Up Some Dust and Sit Down, was for me a better album. But uh, my friend Pat said to me that he believes that um, uh, Springsteen's uh, ability to sell his message of discontent to, inverted commas, the people by making it a stadium rock album makes it more of a folk album than Ry Cooda's uh, album, which is only going to be heard by Ry Cooda fans. Springsteen wanted to sell his message of um, uh, disenchantment with America today, and if it meant making a great big stadium rock album where people are going to hurl their fists into the air and go, shit, yeah, then that makes it more of a folk album than what uh, folk purists claim as being folk. And, and I hated to admit it, but I thought he did have a good point there. But, um, but yeah, the, just the bombast on, on some of the, on the production of some of this um, really, left me, really left me cold. Um, but, as a, but having said that, some of the songwriting is strong. So I, I think let's now go song by song uh, through through the record and um, see what we can salvage and see what we love and uh, what we don't. Uh, first song on the album, We Take Care of Our Own. Um, I, for years, Springsteen complained uh, when he recorded Born in the USA or released back in the USA back in 85 or 86 or whatever it was. Um, he complained a lot that people didn't get the point about the song. Uh, here was a song about a disenchanted Vietnam vet comes back to the USA and rather being welcomed in and treated like a hero or at least being seen as someone who had to fight an unpopular war so well let's give him a job um, this guy was you know, turned away and treated with disdain and he couldn't get work and he couldn't look after his family and you know, he was sneering yeah I was born in the USA as, as a matter of sarcastic discontent um, and you know years after the fact he had to play the song um, pretty much according to his original demo as a uh, really gut bucket low down delta blues type number so then people would listen to the lyric and say ah I get it now because you know for years it was sung in stadiums with their people fist in the air and I think it was you know, Ronald Reagan's you know, disorders uh, or was it George Ronald oh, I can't remember uh, when, 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 when Ronald Reagan was using it as a um, uh, as an anthem for his campaign against Bruce's wishes uh, and they all caught on to this repetitive one-line chorus born in the USA. So that's my way of introduction of saying that the, in, the, the opening song of Wrecking Ball, We Take Care of Our Own, I think is guilty of the same, uh, the same problem that Born in the USA, the song was. Um, you know, he's got some fantastic lyrics here, which are just, the message is buried because he's got this big stadium rock feel about it you know he's he's singing these he's singing these lines like i've been stumbling on good hearts turned to stone the road of good intentions has gone dry as a bone and he's asking questions like where is the love that has not uh, forsaken me where's uh, where's uh, the work that the work that will set my hands free uh, set my hands and my soul free um and these are you know fantastic lines and fantastic questions 
and then he goes and sings sarcastically, we take care of our own. But it's such a happy melody and it's such a big stadium feel about it that he's really in danger of people missing the message. And if he has to give a big speech before the song as you know, he is known to do, um, then maybe it's sort of defeated the purpose. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Hard times. Um, I think I think Bruce has done big speeches introducing these songs for about three or four tours now. Okay. Um, there you go. Which, which for me is quite disappointing. Actually, I used to quite like this one. I think I think I think for me, I sort of I sort of agree with you on the the message of the song. I sort of disagree with you. I think he's done it deliberately. I think he's I think he's done it to kind of parody what's going on in society. You know, there's a serious message out there to be said, but it's all glossed over and made to you know tra la la ra 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 wave our hands, everyone's fine and dandy, you know. Yep. Um, um, I definitely think that yeah, there's a, a heavy note of sarcasm. Um, there's the references to to Woody Guthrie, where's the promise from sea to shining sea in there. Yep. Um, I think Woody would have been about 100 years old now if he was still alive. Um, almost exactly, actually. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I think he's also um, possibly thrown that. Um, let's see if this song gets interpreted, you know, wrongly as possibly my most famous song of all time was. Go on, I'll throw it out there. Do it to me again. I dare you. <laughs> okay, good point. And and Jeff, that's that's funny because it, you know, when when Morris, that's exactly. That's exactly what I felt. Um, I thought, well, isn't this incredible? This guy's thrown out a Born in the USA part two or a Born in the USA for this decade. But, yeah. but I think, but look, I, the funny thing is, um, we, and, and even I guess with my apprehension of the album, um, I tried to resist, but I couldn't. So I listened to the snippets on the internet you know, when um, We Take Care of Our Own was first leaked. And, you know, I, I didn't mind it, uh, but I wasn't bowled over. But I, I'm sort of down the same path as Jeff. I felt, it, it, to me, it's typical Springsteen. And I, I, I can never get this quote right. And you guys might uh, know it and be able to help me out. But it's, it's like, um, you know, um, say, Dancing in the Dark or many Springsteen songs. You've got this really catchy melody and a pretty serious you know, content uh, or context for the song. And We Take Care of Our Own, I think is a, you know, a perfect example of Springsteen at his best, um, where you know, it's, um, he's, it's been this quote where they've said, you know, it's, um, he, his choruses are gospel and um, you know, the very sad content, but I think it is, it is, I think he's throwing down the gauntlet and saying, Okay, misinterpret this one. Yeah, definitely. And I, I'd never thought of it as the sort of Born in the USA part two or, or where the protagonist of Born in the USA might be now, you know. And I, I think you could be pretty well be spot on there. And I think and it's, really, it's very clever the way it does, does that, like you said, in some of the songs, op, songs operating almost on two levels. Yeah. And I think it's like a like Dancing in the Dark that was so huge. And it's yeah, you know, and, and it, it can be a, a, a malign song in you know even among Springsteen enthusiasts. But but I just think if you if you actually uh, where well, I think where Springsteen is great and 
you know, whether your Dylans are great. If you can read the lyrics without, you know, the, the big production and, and if the lyrics jump out at you, then that's a good songwriter. Mm. And, um, but yeah, I'm not saying, the irony is I think we, we take care of our own. Um, someone said it on Chrissy Lake, uh, one of the comments, someone said, yeah, you know, one of the American contributors, they said, yeah, isn't it incredible? You know, we, we take care of our own, might, might be leak a song on the album. This was, another, this was another chap that, you know, I think liked the album. Um, but, um, you know, uh, that great line, and Morris, you might help us out where he talks about, you know, from the, to the Superdome. Uh, From the shotgun shack to the yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that you know that absolutely nails the song. Sure, look, I, I'm, I, I reckon there's massive you know parts of Middle America and Middle Australia that could you know misinterpret it. There's um, jingoism, um, you know, flag waving, but there's, there's a yes, there's definitely a sarcasm there. Mm. Oh. I think that sort of theme works, the sort of multi-layer theme works quite quite a lot through this album. And also there's another couple of, sort of bits where he harks back to earlier songs in his uh, in his yeah. repertoire, which I think is again quite clever by a writer, you know, sort of tying it all together again and sort of saying, mm. right, okay, I'm here now, and this is where I'm going next. Yeah, and then that's, and Morris, I'll, I'll throw this one to you, because this is where I find it hard to even talk about the album song by song, because this is what I think. This is what I think is Springsteen's inherent greatness. When he's when he's on his game, and and you know, okay, well, you know, let's say Jeff and I think this is a you know potentially, if not a great album, to be held up there with you know Darkness or whatever. It's a very very good you know late career album for someone that's you know his age and maybe got his comfort. Um, but where I think Springsteen's at his greatest is where you throw out an album that has, that gives you an overall theme. And, you know, there, there might be some hits and misses in there, like, you know, what I was talking about earlier with why, why I like The Rising, it, it spoke to me. You know, I've never lived in New York and, and um, September 11, you know, probably, you know, didn't affect me, me personally any more than most Australians. but. I, I felt it was the album where you know one of my main musical influences actually got off his butt and 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 had a had a real crack mm. and I'm probably I differ from uh, from you, Morris. I liked Magic a lot and I understood what he was trying to do politically, but. I didn't feel it had like Long Walk Home, incredible song. I felt it was a very, very good album, but not necessarily an album that had you know uh, two or three or four standout great songs. And I'm not even saying that with um, Wrecking Ball that you know there's a song, there's an individual song on the album that you could say, oh look, you know he's just written another. Um, price you pay or another promised land but it, to me it's the overall feel of the album and I think this is very skill for a, skillful and, and I guess we shouldn't say for a man of his age but why I say age I just say it's someone that's released so many albums it's been around so long and people as great as him you know your, your Vans your Dylans and your Neil Youngs in my opinion haven't you know a, a, in my career done this 
you know, remarkably different thing. Whereas I think here he's 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 written an album that isn't chock full of his I guess his standard tropes, which is you know Mary and Janie and and uh, character driven and 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 talking about streets and avenues. It's a very emotional album. It's very angry at the beginning, and it gives you I think it, it embodies everything in the second half. What we love about Springsteen is that. Um, you guys touched upon it earlier, but um, you know, he, he gives you hope. And I read an interesting quote during the week, uh, I thought it was an absolute classic, I'd never thought about it. They were comparing, uh, I was on a, uh, a, a, the band, a band site for the, for the North American group, The Band, and someone said that they were comparing Neil Young and Springsteen as songwriters, and they said, Neil Young makes you feel like he's only as good as you. Whereas Springsteen makes you feel like you can become as great as he is. Mm. And I thought that was a very interesting comment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's a, lot of, a lot in that. It's, it, yeah, that's, that's a clever comment, actually, yeah. So look, I, 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 should, I think I should clarify that uh, my position on this album is not so much that he's writing poor songs, far from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot to like about this album, but I mean the, the, the old. Look, I'll, I'll make a I'll make an analogy here. Um, as you know, uh, you guys know, the last few years I've been involved in a four-piece a cappella group, and um, basically between myself and my friend Adam, we've been taking duties at uh, doing most of the arranging for the group. And you know, Adam and I have you know very very different tastes, uh, but we have one firm rule in the group: is that if we take the time to arrange, we'll do the song unless and unless the song doesn't work as a four part, we'll do it regardless of our feelings for the original version of the song. And you know, Adam's really into Depeche Mode, which I can't stand, and I'm a I'm a Beatles freak, which he can't stand. But somehow we make these songs. Work in their own way, and you know, I now I, I still won't listen to a Depeche Mode song. But the thought of not doing the Depeche Mode songs that Adam has arranged for the group would be unthinkable. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, the raw material—if we have a great melody and a great set of lyrics, and you can work it into something yeah. that sounds good to your ears—then you know, you've got something. You've got something you can work with there. And sort of to get off that, I, I think that a lot of these songs. If they've been performed differently, or certainly produced differently, uh, I'd have a whole lot more enthusiasm for them. It's not like um, you know, there's, there's anything wrong with the melodies, although I think actually one of the songs, uh, Jack of All Trades, uh, that's definitely a recycled melody. He's, he's run that melody past about three or four times along the way. But that notwithstanding, um, no, I, I think if if the album, if you decide, it, it sounds like he doesn't quite know what he wants here, whether he wants uh, a rock record or another Seeger Sessions record, and he's trying to see if he can combine the two. And I personally would have liked to have seen this album uh, a lot more uh, in that Seeger Sessions vein. I'm not going to say a lot more acoustic, because he's done the acoustic road and maybe not to the great sort of success that we sort of hoped he would have done. Uh, Tom Joe. It isn't, isn't for me, you know, one of my favourites. Neither is Devils and Dust, although they've both got stuff to recommend on them. Um, but, 
but there was something just exciting. The New Orleans feel uh, the, uh, of uh, Sega Sessions, it was, it was vital. And, and the, the album production, despite it having Brendan O'Brien, it felt like it had space. The songs had space to breathe and to move, and it was done spontaneous. And I think if there'd been more spontaneity in the recording of these songs, um, then I think it would have been, for me, artistically, a more successful album. I hear what both of you are saying, and I'll even acknowledge that you probably have a point that Springsteen is saying to his audience, I dare you to make the same mistake over again, and you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take that on board. And, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worthwhile point. But overall, um, I, I, no, I just, I, I, I see that there's some great songs that are struggling to get out, uh, that are hampered by, um, what's this guy, Ron Aniello, is that his name? Ron yeah. Aniello, I think, I, I think it's a pseudonym for Brendan O'Brien. I tell you what, let's, let's do the rest of the show a little bit more informally. As I said, like normally we go song by song but seeing as um, John you know you, you sort of want to pursue the album overall thematically maybe if you want to make some points about the album use specific songs to yeah. illustrate your point I mean I, I'm probably sort of going to rather at this stage rather than going track by track on the album I might sort of go through well I didn't want to hi- I don't want to hijack so. that but no 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 it's fine I I, I you know, I invited you on the show. Let's 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 go with that. Let's try that. So but I tell you, what, I tell you, um, you've sparked uh, something, um, Morris. There again, talking about the album overall. What I see it, what I see the album as, it's it seems to be probably let's it's it's a, the evolution of the Sega sessions, which I guess it's rem, it's remiss. Um, we all spoke about, I guess, the current. You know, status of Springsteen. Um, just quickly on the Sega sessions, that was that was another that was another reason that really, you know, I talked about getting all these shows and um, Greasy Lake and meeting you guys and meeting other people on Greasy Lake, you know, Kindred Spirits. But the Sega sessions themselves, I thought that that completely revitalised my interest in Springsteen because I found. Not only what an incredible concept to go from you know, 1920s, 1930s and stop at the birth of rock and roll. He's one of the greatest rock and rollers of all time and he stopped at the dawn of rock and roll. But then, then to even up the ante and his own great songs infuse them with a Sega Session sound. I just found uh, the shows, they, they, that's some of my you know, favourite uh, Springsteen listening, but then you read, you know, on Greasy Lake, there's people that absolutely loathe that Sega session thing. But to me, that's the epitome of an artist not standing still, you know, artistically. And I see, I see Wrecking Ball. It's an evolution. It's a bit of, yeah. Look, it, bombast is a good word, and and um, Bruce has got it, you know, with a capital B. But I think it's a fusion of his Sega session sensibility and. It's a bit of an East Street attack. We'll, we could call it um, Nebraska or Devils and Dust or Ghost of Tom Jode on steroids. Yeah, yeah. Jeff? Yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, the, the Seeger Sessions for me, not my favourite, but um, I either go mad for it or then I ignore it for months. You know, I, I, it's either it'll come on and I'll listen to it for, you know, endlessly for ages or I'll, and then I'll just not for a long time. 
And then we brought it up again, I'll probably think, oh, I haven't listened to that for a while, I'll go do so. But um, I just think that the, that the the production and the sort of, um, forget who, who said there, um, it sounds a bit sort of strangled or, um, what's the word, suffocated. Um, I think when you could line that up with the whole theme of, of what the record's all about, is this the, the working man in America being strangled and suffocated by the... Uh, you know the current political rather economic situation that's going on there and there's certainly no getting away from the fact that this this record makes enormous comment about the um the current economic situation the injustice of it all and how absolutely nothing is likely to change because it's gone too bloody far that's written by a millionaire <laughs> yeah exactly that's, um, that's just one weird one that you can never reconcile with, uh, with bruce writing about tales of the working man you know mm-hmm. I mean, look, I, I, I guess, you know, he probably feels, and rightly so, that, you know, he wants to write about what he knows, and despite the fact that, you know, he's gone and made, you know, shitloads of cash, um, you know, he, he's all of a sudden not going to start writing songs about um, drinking champagne and sitting out on his yacht. Um, you know, he still sort of sees himself as, you know, the kid that ran around New Jersey. Um, mm. And, and uh, you know, that's what he wants to write about he can still see the uh, injustices but um, there was an Elvis Costello song from years ago uh, which has stayed with me so a song called The Other Side of Summer um, had, had a rather silly film clip but it was a rather good song uh, and there was a line in it where he sang um, about John Lennon he sang uh, was it a millionaire who said imagine no possessions and I guess when, when I hear you know Bruce singing these these odes to uh, the ordinary guy, whilst I know his heart's in the right place, I sort of I do recall that Elvis Costello line as well. Mm, well, I mean, I think um, Bruce tried writing some songs more about living the life that he he leads now, not so much in terms of having pots of cash, but in terms of generally being pretty happy and contented. I mean, he called the album working on a dream rather paradoxically. And he got stupid <laughs> for it. Yeah, fair point. He absolutely yeah. pined for it. He tried writing a song about um, finding something amazingly beautiful and lovely in the most mundane of circumstances, called it Queen of the Supermarket, and got laughed at. <laughs> that personally yeah. I think is a really great song. Yeah, but, I think a happy Bruce isn't, a, isn't an interesting Bruce. And yeah, I, I was, I was quite pleased, you know, he's pissed off, you know, he's... He's angry in this album, and he's disillusioned with Obama, and and I think, well, you know, um, Springsteen, um, you know, wanted to say something about uh, September 11, and um, to take you know, Morris's cue, you know, with Magic, he was talking about the Bush administration. Um, Dylan, you know, needed to um, get divorced or be in the throes of being divorced to make blood on the tracks. I think we need our artists to um, not necessarily be happy. I don't know whether there's that many great um, um, Everything's Fine With The World albums. Um, and yeah, definitely, I think his disillusionment, this in, disillusionment uh, in this instance has made some um, interesting art. I think um, someone, I don't know, probably on one of the uh, rock forums, but uh, someone pointed out that probably um, one of the uh, greatest examples, maybe not one of the great, but certainly a great example of um, 
disillusionment producing great art was um, uh, the Beck album of, I don't know how many years ago, 10 years ago, called Sea Change. He just um, separated from his girlfriend or wife or whoever she was of, uh, many years ago and he was depressed as hell and he came up with this absolutely knockout gorgeous mm. album. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, uh, it, it, it seems that uh, um, bad circumstances produce great art. Yeah, it's, it's definitely true. Um, but, um, but then again, I guess, you know, it's on the other hand, whereas Beck's album um, came from bad circumstances coming to him personally, this is more Springsteen sitting back as an observer because, you know, whatever, he'll still be able to go out on the road and he'll still be able to play with his friends, mm. make great music. So he's. Yeah, he certainly feels the injustice, but we're talking about a man who you know, is able to play personally for the president, be friends with the president. Yeah. Um, he's, he's really there more as observer rather than as someone who had to actually suffer uh, and, and record these songs as uh, a reaction to his own personal suffering. Yeah, I mean, Steve Al mentioned something along these lines the other night when he was talking between songs, and he said something about, you know, how he, he strongly believes that that songs songs can change um, climates and politics. It's happened in the past, it can happen again. Um, but the bit that he added on was, you know, you can't just listen to them. You've got to get out there and sing them, you know? So I think Bruce has pretty much charged himself with doing that. Yep. You know, he's got something to say. He's got a really good vehicle to get out there and say it. You know, mm. and and getting all the getting all the people involved and getting them on board. I mean, what he'll change, I don't, I don't really know. But you know, I think the current situation in the states, and it's mirrored here over in Australia, and certainly in the UK, and you know, Greece and Spain, places like that, are falling apart. Um, something has to be said. And as Bruce points out on this album, the little guy can't say it anymore. So maybe he, need, you know, maybe people like that need to act as a mouthpiece. Well, do you, do you actually think? I mean, because like nowadays, I guess if we're going to be talking about, well, I, I don't know, if if we mean the little guy can't stand up for himself to city hall, maybe if we're talking about the songwriter, though, more than ever. Uh, you know, any guy with a guitar and a you know, $200 computer and a bit of software can uh, you know, record his, his or her message of discontent and get it out there to be heard like never before. I think if you can afford to, you can, but there's a lot of people out there who can't actually afford to do that, you know. Um, I think that's, that's, that's part of the, the essence of what, what Bruce is screaming and yelling about in this uh, in this album. You know, look at Jack of All Trades. I bet the guy in there doesn't have a state-of-the-art computer to get online and do all that kind well, of you stuff. Well, you don't need the state-of-the-art computer. Even if, even if you don't want to record it and put it online, you just, if you've got a, I don't know, whatever, you've got a ukulele, you've got a harmonica, get out there and, and, and you know, it seems like everyone's trying to make themselves heard. We're not talking about on you know Australian or American Idol or anything like that. But, mm, um, I would just hope that anyone with a ukulele thinks twice. Though. But um, don't knock the ukulele. <laughs> I just wanted to add when we're talking about broad themes, one big broad theme that that leaps out of this album in, in various different areas and guises for me is um, the American Civil War. I think Bruce is making a lot of allusions there, some of the language he uses, as well as some of the musical stylings, obviously. Um, okay, I want you to talk about this because um, 
there are two songs that struck me as being Civil War related. And one of the songs I completely misinterpreted, at least if what I read online is any accurate indication. So uh, go ahead specifically, uh, which songs were you talking about? I, I saw two, but maybe it's only one. Certainly say Death to My Hometown. Right, now that's the song I misinterpreted. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's uh, comparing what's, what's going on now with, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but with the economic climate that happened around the time of the Civil War. Because um, so, let's face it, wars are thought about economics, they're not thought about slavery or human rights or any nonsense like that. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole lot of stuff in, in there. Um, obviously, there's the, there's the sound of it. It sounds like, you know, the marching music from, from those times. Um, heavily influenced by the Irish guys who fought in the Civil War, of course. And um, also, there's, there's allusion to it on uh, Jack of All Trades, um, when he mentions something about uh, some another being soaked in treasures and blood. Which was a quote, I'm not sure, I'm guessing it was someone like Joshua Chamberlain who may have said that in an address at some stage. He was a, a general in the, uh, or a colonel or something in, the, in, in the, the Union Army back at the time. So I think you know, Bruce has picked up on some of those um, times of economic injustice and he's making a direct comparison. But I think even, uh, Jeff, in We Are Alive and um, my, yeah, my history is pretty rusty, but I love um, not quite Civil War because I think it's a few years, but only a few years after the Civil War. He has that great verse where he, you know, for want of a better word, it's like a roll call of the dead. You know, it I was cried out, I was killed in Maryland in 1877 when the, the, the rail, railroad workers made their stand. The, the, the protagonist in that song is representative of um, anyone uh, in America who lost their life or in, in yeah. some sort of conflict, uh, you know, be it through uh, the civil rights movement, mm. um, through the civil war, uh, be they you know, in Iraq. Um, I just found that, that song very clever. Um, it's you know, the last song on the album, but I think it's a different style of writing uh, by Bruce. It's still got the you know the the populism or you know the the identifying with the underdog. Um, yeah. Well, I was killed in 1963 one Sunday morning in Birmingham. Well, I died last year crossing the Southern Desert. Ship mm -hmm. left behind in San Pablo. So I like to raise Jeff's civil war and also throw in and I suppose you know it's a, it's an it's it's an often used um, method with songwriters but and, and Bruce has definitely not been shy of using this in the past but a lot of um, biblical imagery in the songs oh yeah it's all over this album yeah and and what I like about you know well, all these things we've said and you know I could laugh at in five years time when we do podcast um, 97 and we revisit <laughs> but I think it gives the it gives the album a timelessness that um, I think you know maybe um, the rising's going to be stuck around 2001 and magic may be defined by Bush era um, antagonism but that the biblical imagery the you know 1877 in Maryland and uh, and well, Jeff, you, you've given me a completely different view on. You know, I had a pretty. I might be like Morris. I, well, my view of death to my hometown was, it was really, uh, you know, 
unimaginably a, an update on my hometown and you know well, those I think that's in there too, definitely. I think it's yeah. one of the double or multi-level, multi-level songs. Even the construction of it, it's my hometown, yeah. my hometown, then becomes ours. And but the funny thing was, that, that was another reason why I was very apprehensive about this album. I'm going, oh my God, he's, he can't even come up with a unique title of this album. It's a song <laughs> he wrote three years ago. He's put on Land of Hope and Dreams, a song he wrote 10 years ago. And there's a song called Death to My Hometown. That's almost like... You know, if you had a Springsteen parody act, that would be a title of a Springsteen, you know, parody artist. But as I say, all those fears were allayed, and, and particularly, Wrecking Ball really works for me. I, I wasn't like gobsmacked with the song in 2009, the live versions I've heard, but the album version, but, it, but even more to the point, the live version, I've only seen one live version on the, um, the Fallon Tonight Show, uh, and Land of Hope and Dreams, um, in the studio it does something different for me than you know, the millions of live versions I've guessed we've, we've heard in the chorus. Mm. Look, I, I think I want to actually sort of step in here given that we're sort of on the song Wrecking Ball. Um, I, I guess like you, I was probably, I, I think that Jeff had gone and brought back for me um, a recording of the uh, Giants Stadium show and I, I thought you know, the actual song Wrecking Ball at the time was neither here nor there. And despite my um, complaints about uh, the production and some of the arrangements on this album, for me, the two songs that work best uh, are the two songs that you guys sort of thought, oh God, he's lost it, uh, which are Wrecking Ball and the you know, uh, delayed studio version of uh, Land of Hope and Dreams. Um, yes. So, so uh, look, Wrecking Ball, it's everything that I said was a problem on the other song actually works so well on this on this, on this this song. Uh, the musicianship is, is great, the instrumentation works, uh, production here actually works. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great balance. The song, the lyric itself is a great balance of uh, bitter disappointment but defiance, which is really what great folk music is uh, supposed to be. You know, it's got sorrow and joy in the lyrics. Um, and I don't know, I guess that's something that I think some of the other songs in the first part anyway really lack. There's, you know, there's these happy melodies, but they're all really bitter where, you know, it, it, I think maybe, and not for me, I, I, I can arrange a song, but I can't write a song to save my life. I wouldn't be telling this just how to write a song. But some of those earlier songs on the album that sound so incredibly bitter, I think if it had been maybe a little light, um, just a little bit of light at the end of the song. And I know that other great songwriters do this, they can still convey the same message without it becoming disnified uh, by having a happy ending. Do you think of the, um, like, that's a really good point, but say, like, some of the greatest songs in history have had this, you know, beautiful melody. You know, Dylan's Positively Fourth Street, maybe one of the most bitter, you know, snarly songs ever. Yeah. It's got that really, you know, that catchy um, organ part. And, 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 and I think, you know, I think Springsteen, you know, he, he I'm not saying he, well, you know, maybe he wears his influences on his sleeve and, and there's I'm not saying, you know, Dylan's overtly in this album, but I think Springsteen is, is the master of um, you know, serious content but incredible hooks. 
Mm. You know, he's giving you this message with incredible hooks. He's done it throughout his whole career. Well, look, on a, on a song like this, it really, really works. Um, but unlike, as I said, on the first part of the album where he's, you know, he's got these hooks, but it's bitter, bitter, bitter. Whereas here, this song, it's... There's a sense of bitterness with his with his great hooks, but there's still the sense of defiance. You know what? Take your wrecking ball, give it your best shot. You know, you you can knock down this stadium, but you know, and, and you, you've done it time and time again. You know, we we we've had to get up, but we have gotten up. Um, I love I love uh, the, the start of the song. Um, he, he really knows how to paint a picture, uh, and it's one thing to tell a great story. But it's also got to be the, the establishment, right? This is where we're set. And he, he sings, uh, I was raised out of steel here in the swamps of Jersey some misty years ago through the mud and the fear, the blood and the tears. I've seen champions come and go. And then he goes and sings, if you've got the ball, bring on your record ball. Mm. But those opening lines, it just, you, you, can, you can see the swamp, you can, you can smell the atmosphere. And it's just, you know where he's going to head with this, but he's also painted a really good picture in your head you, you can you can see the stadium and, and you know really out of the three of us you know jeff's the only one who's been there well i presume you haven't been there john i don't know um but i certainly haven't but when he describes this i can see what new jersey is like i can see what the environment is like it's just it's, it's fantastic uh he, he's singing about this uh, great american icon uh, that's uh in terms of dust uh, for uh, what I call the songwriting ubiquitous car park. And, uh, and uh, I'm thinking of songs like uh, Big, Yellow Taxi, Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell or um, another, uh, another favourite song of mine, Come Dancing by The Kinks. Um, uh, our, uh, our early memories of something wonderful turns to dust for a car park. And even that line, I, I love that line, um, some misty years ago. Can't articulate, you know, what it means, but mm. it's like what you what what you alluded to earlier. There, I'm seeing like it, it almost in that very economical sentence that sums up, you know, his whole career. You know, it's sort of uh, it's a blurring of yeah, all the battles he's you know fought and won and drawn and lost. Mm. Yeah, I think for me, there's a couple of simple sort of themes running there as well. Um, <clears throat> this is all about change. Um, you know, what happens when things change, um, even though you don't want them to, when you get something new? And is that always bad? Is it always good? You know, these things, you know, he's talking about, the, you know, the stadium's going to die or, you know, changes are going to happen and all the rest of it. But when that's all been reduced to dust and rubble and all the rest of it, um, yeah, the physical stuff's gone. But the, the champions that you've seen come and go still live on. Mm. So you can make changes in your life, I think. You, you can sort of translate that into um, you know you'll get things thrown at you but you know if you stay connected and stay doing the right things then you know bring on the wrecking ball you know come and have a go if you think you're hard enough kind of things you know um, and it's funny John said positively fourth street there because I'd actually for the, one of the first times ever Morris I've jotted down a couple of notes for a podcast and the, the bit that I was sort of saying was it's, it's kind of like um in the, in the Wrecking Ball song, it's sort of like you know, disguising destruction as progress. Mm. 
which reminds me of the, 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 the verse, and I've written it down from Positively 4th Street, and I hope I've got this right. You got a lot of nerve to say you got a helping hand to lend. Yes. You want to be on the side that's winning. Yes. I think that's, I think that's approximately right. Um, because, yeah, you know, it's sort of like, we're, we're being force-fed change very rapidly these days, all the time, left, right and centre, and it's always good, it's always good, it's always good. But very often, they're just telling us that these things have to change because, well, it's going to make them money, and they, they think they're helping us out, or they say they're helping us out, but, you know, what they're really doing is just coming on the winning side themselves. We're being sold shit as Shinola. <laughs> <laughs> No, look, that's, um, uh, I, I think, uh, the other song I wanted, I wanted to go to, um, uh, as I mentioned before, that you, know, you, you two were both reserved about hearing that these older songs were making it onto the album, and yet I think it's quite a logical progression to go from um, Wrecking Ball to something like Land of Hope and Dreams. Um, so there's, there's the, um, the bravado, I guess, of wrecking ball but there's um, something a lot more uh, believing and hopeful and less far less cynical of uh, Land of Hope and Dreams. Now the other song um, uh, earlier on, uh, I think just preceding Land of Hope and Dreams uh, is Rocky Ground which you know, like um, Land of Hope and Dreams uh, also has a gospel feel. Now I, I, know, I just sort of thought for me Rocky Ground as a composition, this is not even a production thing, I think Rocky Ground was Springsteen by numbers, you'd have to look with nothing for me, I thought it was a dull song. But Land of Hope and Dreams, which is the other big gospel, at least stylistically, musically song on the album, um, I found it exciting when I first uh, heard it. I think that the first song I downloaded um, uh, uh, years ago, um, I found it exciting then and I still find it exciting now. Um, it, yeah, look, is it 2000? I think this was revived for even before the rising. I think it was the early, early part of the reunion tour, wasn't it? It was, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and I think this is, um, if not the final, then certainly one of the final recordings of Clarence Clements. Yeah. Um, before I'd gone and read the liner notes, on the album, I thought, wow, whoever he's got is really paying tribute to Clarence. And then I read the line and I thought, ah, it is Clarence. You know, it's, it's, um, it's really great. It's, the song is exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and this is, this is really where what we were talking about before the snake oil salesman of Springsteen on stage can really rise to the fore. Um, uh, he, he's selling the power of belief, uh, and you know, he's giving everyone, you know, praise the Lord. Uh, and you know, like a lot of filmmakers and a lot of other songwriters, he, he's using um, he's using the metaphor of a, a traveling train for uh, sailing into. Uh, an unknown life, but you can potentially make it a better life, but it, it doesn't matter who you are. This train carries saints and sinners. This train carries losers and winners. This train carries whores and gamblers. This train carries lost souls. I said this train dreams will not be thwarted. This, this train fate will be thwarted. Um, well, I, would, I would maybe disagree with you actually quite a bit there, Boris. Um, Go for it. I would, I would suggest that if any song is Springsteen by numbers, then it's Land of Hope and Dreams. 
It's let's compare the American dream to a train. Thank you. It's it's Ooh. okay, granted it's it's not a unique um, it's not a unique theme and I I I yeah, I've gone and admitted that. Um, but I think he does it I think it's his choice of positioning it in the album. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think I, I, I've Back to basics I, people, remember this. Remember this? Yeah, because I, I think I'm guilty of I, I got a bit complacent with Land of Hope and Dreams because you know, we've we've heard it on, you know, two hundred shows since the reunion tour. Mm. But the placement of it on this album, it hit me square between the eyes. But even even though, yeah, look, that train is a metaphor, it's off often used in songwriting, but I actually love uh, the song before it, Rocky Ground, and yeah. I, I think it's Springsteen not by numbers. I find it, you know, like, for, you know, he's, he's, you know, it's a terrible thing. Like even my 14-year-old daughter, she said, are you, like, Springsteen's got a rap in his song? Are you happy with that? And I said, look, I like it because it's different. It's gutsy. He, he said, he joked, I don't know whether it was at the Apollo show, I think it must have been, in his intro to Rocky Ground, he said, look, I tried it and it just didn't sound any good. So, you know, he got the young lady on the album whose name, Michelle. Michelle I Moore. Yeah, that's right. Um, but but the one-two punch of Rocky Ground seeking into Land of Hope and Dreams, Land of Hope and Dreams, as it is in the studio for Wrecking Ball, has completely revitalised that song for me. But then then to finish with We Are Alive, which I think, you know, we, we touched upon that, magnificent um, verse um, in the middle of that song, I, I, I just thought, what an incredible end to an album that started off, you know, pretty angry, you know, you, you were shackled and drawn and, and, and you know, the great um, ending to Jack of All Trades. And I just thought, what a, you know, what a great journey he's taken us on in this album. And, you know, I, I just love that. I love that finish. Mm. I know it's just for me, rocky ground. Um, uh, I know just hearing that that opening line repeated, we've been traveling over rocky ground. I thought, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's that's as overutilized, if not more so, than um, uh, than the the metaphor of the train. And yeah, well, I, maybe I, I've got no right to make that complaint. But you know what I love? I think though, in rocky ground, mm. and uh, have a listen. I, I love he's. He's your snake. He's your snake oil salesman that you mentioned earlier. Because I love you can't on the studio album. I can't quite hear what he's chanting, but when I listen to the Apollo show, I think he's saying, "I'm a soldier," mm. and and I just and it, to me that's the Springsteen as the you know the preacher or the town crier or you know that folk tradition that um, Woody Guthrie going out in the land and you know selling his message. And, you know, again, one of my favourite songs from the Rising album, uh, and it seems to fit in well with the Wrecking Ball material, My City of Ruins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we think, we think, oh, like, you know, I'd even forgotten, you know, as a diehard Springsteen fan, um, I was actually over, on, over, over in Ireland on holidays when that um, September 11 telecast came on and Springsteen opened the whole show and he did My City of Ruins, but he, he'd actually written that a couple of years prior to September 11 for New Orleans. But I, I find Rocky Ground is, that's Springsteen the Preacher and it's still Springsteen the Preacher or the Snake Oil Salesman in Land of Hope and Dreams. It's, um, yeah, I, I, 
I think very 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 good use of gospel and soul, you know, uh, his soul influences. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he's never shied away from that though. That he's he's quite often had, you know, little interludes in some of his his longer songs and in, in shows. Mm. He's introduced you know bits of gospel numbers and mm. and that's the, you know and in that rocky ground the chant you know I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord. Mm. You know, you know, that's quite a, yeah, it, for me, Rocky Ground, when I heard that opening bit as well, Morris, I must admit, I thought, oh, God, here we go, I don't like this. <laughs> but then I came back and actually listened to the words again. Mm. And I still I still don't like that intro part, but you know, after that, for me, it's, it's one of the highlights of the whole album. Mm. No, really? Okay. Um, all right, look, I think we, we've probably gone and discussed um, the album in... Uh, I mean, I guess we could probably carry on a whole lot longer, but um, uh, probably at this stage, I'd just like to say, any final thoughts, any anything, uh, any themes or anything in particular either you guys want to say about the album before we uh, wrap it up? Is this the only Springsteen album that he's never mentioned a car? Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, good question. Um uh, did, did he, does he mention does he mention anything on uh, on Ghost of Tom J? Oh, now you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be a, a bit a, a bit unsure about uh, Devils and Dust, but certainly um, this is probably one of the few albums where Jamie hasn't made an appearance. I, I think yeah. John, you already alluded to that, um, and uh, no Janie or Johnny. And he doesn't open any of his songs with the word well. Well. Mm. Well. Mm. Well I was, well he was, well yeah. we were. Fair point. I actually, I tell a lie. He opens death to my hometown with well. Uh, <laughs> oh, he does. Yeah. All right. Um, but look, I, I think um, the album, um, you know, I think for us, well, for me anyway, I think, it gives me hope that Springsteen, in his um, seventh decade, um, won't necessarily uh, fall into, you know, a rut that I think, you know, as I say, it might be controversial for me to say, you know, everyone, like, you know, everyone lauded, say, Dylan's modern times, but I felt that's Bob, that's Bob by numbers. Yeah, I, that's, I didn't like it either. Yeah, that's like... And and I've actually you know a couple of um, you know friends that are even diehard Dylan fans and I than I am agree. And I, I, what I see with Wrecking Ball is I, I do see that Springsteen uh, may have uh, some confidence that might have you know may have been eroded with uh, Working on a Dream because if he really believed in the Working on a Dream album, and I'm sure he did when he was making it. He definitely um, didn't champion it or embrace it on the subsequent tour because it was basically the Working on a Dream tour without really any Working on a Dream songs other than, you know, Outlaw Pete or a couple that made it. Um, whereas I think in this, with this album, he doesn't, I think he may have given himself a device where he doesn't have to really isolate himself like he did with Ghost of Tom Jode and... Uh, Devils and Dust, and I, I kind of agree with what you said, Morris. I love the idea of Ghost of Tom Jode. I mm. love the title track, and I love Straight Time. Is it an album I listen to very often? No, because you know it's not 
melodically interesting or, you know, um, and Devils and Dust, similarly, it's, you know, I couldn't tell you the last time I played it through, mm. whereas the, the litmus test for me is, you know, in this day and age when we get so much music and you've got, you know, more songs on your iPod that you can jump over and you tend to only give, you know, even, you know, friends give you albums, you buy albums, you, you know, uh, you get albums by all sorts of means. And I find that I'm guilty of, you know, I play, you know, that out. I give an album one cursory listen and then you move on to the next 16 albums you get the next week. Whereas the litmus test for me is, am I voluntarily going back and listening to this album? And I have been. Not, and it's not just because it's a new Springsteen album, because I'm pretty hard on my heroes, you know, that, or my major influences. I, and I'd like to think I am, I hope I'm, you know, I'm objective. And I'm definitely hard on you know Dylan. I don't feel like he's really done anything of note since Time Out of Mind, um, possibly Love and Theft. Um, but modern times that he got number one and you know platitudes, um, I felt you know he only got them because he was Dylan. And and I know Springsteen suffers from being. He's another one of those artists that's almost critic proof. You know he's definitely critic proof with Rolling Stone. But on this one. I think he's had a real go at uh, doing something different and, and that might sustain him, you know, for his next few albums. Yeah. I'd like to see him go back. I'd like to see him try doing something, um, uh, if not necessarily returning to theme of girls and cars, but it'll be interesting to see if he goes and does an album that's um, more, more personal, you know, something that's maybe not politically charged. Um, I, I think maybe it was with you, Jeff, that um, we've both gone and discussed on a number of occasions that uh, we think Tunnel of Love is uh, is a sort of masterpiece. Um, mm. he, after he, he could have made this Son of Born in the USA, and there he goes and makes this very quiet, very personal album. Mm. Um, and um, that's that's certainly an album that's worn the test of time, and I keep coming back to and. Uh, yeah, that's definitely a masterpiece for me. Oh, uh, I'd like to see if he went back to something. Um, maybe not. I don't know. I'd like to see him do something like that again. I think that's 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 a good wish. That one. Mm. All right, um, Jeff. Any any final words? About uh, I might I might just bite my tongue here at this at the, at the uh, risk of opening up the podcast to its uh, next two hours. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, you might we might have to uh, make it by email then. Um, all right. Look. Uh, okay. So um, I think yeah. Okay. So that's it. What we want to discuss with Springsteen. Um, so before we go out, uh, I'd just like to give um, some shout outs to uh, some of the other uh, podcasts that um, I really love to listen to, and also um, I'm quite thrilled are also big supporters of uh, my show. Um, and they are uh, the Silver and Gold podcast, hosted by uh, Dr. Zom, who's been on the show a couple of times, and uh, Pick a Loaf, uh, and uh, should probably get the loaf on, just so I don't play favourites uh, onto the program some stage, and uh, given that I took up his Galaxy 500 recommendation, um, should probably, uh, it might be a thing to talk about that album with him. Um, Paleo Cinema, hosted uh, by... Terry Frost recorded right out of uh, uh, my hometown, or our hometown of Melbourne, 
Uh, uh, Terry has just released episode 99 of his podcast today. Uh, in two weeks, episode 100, quite a milestone. And I've been listening to his show all the way back, I think, from the mid-60s. You know, really quite a highlight every fortnight for me to download Paleo Cinema. So uh, congratulations to you, Terry, on reaching episode 100 in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the Mondo Film Podcast, hosted by Justin Bozong. Uh, there's been a bit of a delay to uh, the release of his uh, uh, Jerry Lewis discussion episodes uh, through um, a, a variety of circumstances, but I think they're being released in the next couple of weeks. So uh, listen out for that. Search up Mondo Film Podcast. His show's absolutely fantastic, and it's quite a, a thrill for me to uh, chat with him about uh, the Paul Simon One Trick Pony uh, album and film uh, a few weeks back. Uh, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, uh, hosted by uh, Sam Urai and Large William, uh, always doing some great shows there on uh, genre cinema. Always um, uh, everything that they have to say about their films are always interesting. Uh, and the girls on film, uh, they take the uh, female perspective on uh, what are traditionally blokey films. Um, they hadn't recorded in many months. They did an Oscar special a few weeks back, but I'm waiting to see when their first proper show in some months will uh, be. So, girls, get on with it. Uh, and a couple of uh, music podcasts, we've got to support them. Uh, Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide, hosted by Michael Persh. And speaking of uh, uh, milestones, he's just released episode 300 of his program. And I felt very honored to be asked to uh, come onto his show. Uh, Michael, as well as being a uh, fellow podcaster, is also a fellow drummer. So he decided for episode 300, the two of us should discuss uh, our 10 favorite drummers ever. And that was uh, an absolute, had a ball doing that. Uh, so listen in for that. And he's just gone and recorded an interview with um, the lead singer of a band we have both long admired. I'm talking about Fee Waybill of The Tubes. Um, and uh, Fee Waver was very, very generous with his time. I've listened. Uh, Michael's already gone and sent me a uh, preview of the uh, episode, and Fee Waver talks about a lot of interesting stuff, even if you're not into the tubes. Just to hear his take on the music business um, is nothing short of fascinating, and uh, so I hope Michael will be putting that online sometime soon. Listen out for that. And finally, a big cheer shout-out to... Uh, uh, the guys hosting the List Music Podcast. I've been asking them for weeks to uh, make a promo for their show so I can play it on my show. They haven't uh, done that yet, but uh, I will still give them the uh, every show the, uh, the shout-out because uh, they've put out uh, a really fantastic show for them, a very simple concept. Um, just listing their top five of whatever that the theme of that show is going to be their, their top five drinking songs, their top five guitarists or their top five Christmas songs, whatever it might be. But all four hosts have got very diverse tastes. So um, it's really interesting to see the range of uh, songs or albums that they may come up to that week's subject. So the list music podcast, and they also have uh, an equivalent for the films, uh, strangely enough called the list film podcast. So um, search any of those out, please listen to them, please support them. Uh, they've been very good to me, uh, and they just put on some great shows to boot. So um, I urge you to search them out. Uh, and final piece of housekeeping, if you wish to send in some feedback, either by email or by an MP3 voicemail, um, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, send an email to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Uh, either send me an email or 
send, just record your voice as an MP3. I'll play it on the show, whatever you want to talk about uh, related to music, be it to the show or something you're listening to. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I think that's pretty much covered it all. Um, so um, I hope that uh, the three of us will get together to do another program sometime soon. Guys, you up for it? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Fantastic. All right. So um, uh, the next show will be on in a couple of weeks. Uh, it'll be a show with Michael Persh. Um, and I won't say too much about what it's going to be just yet. But, um, yeah, so listen to that in a couple of weeks. Be recording with Michael Persh sitting in a bar in Adelaide. Fame. And actually, he's coming from Adelaide to Melbourne. Uh, for a couple of events and so we'll be recording our show for the first time in the same room rather than over Skype and that'll be nice. So um, anyway, uh, John, Jeff, thanks so much for uh, being a part of this Springsteen discussion. I know I've gotten a lot out of it. I might have to uh, listen to the album in uh, with a new frame of mind, I think. Thank you, Morris. Yeah, thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. All right. Excellent. Okay, we'll uh, speak soon and uh, thanks to all of you out there for listening to Love That Album. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.